0: Crossway Church, Sermon Audio. If you've been around a young child during this time of year, during the Christmas season, you know what it is to truly long for something. As the Christmas flyers roll out and and they come in the mail, and the child takes them off by himself and he he studies and he studies and he circles his favorites and, and he considers, what would I like to have? And sometimes, in in a moment of transcendent inspiration, his eyes alight on what we might term, and you have to imagine this in all caps, the gift of surpassing greatness. In a moment, the child knows that the gift of surpassing greatness contains that elusive key to true happiness. If he could only receive the gift of surpassing greatness, he would never, ever ask for another present. All of his free time needs would be met for eternity. The the deepest desires of his heart would be finally realized and perhaps even surpassed. He may literally burst for joy. And so he begins to tell everyone what the gift of surpassing greatness would be. It it dominates his every waking thought and and it's the topic of his every conversation. And if you're the, the parent or the grandparent or the aunt or uncle of this child, he not so subtly implies that you could become the gift giver of surpassing greatness, if you would just purchase said gift. It's actually a very sweet phenomenon. Uh, we've all likely been this child at some point in our lives, and we, we know what it is to truly long for that kind of gift. Well, I think it helps us to understand Second Peter. If we can picture the apostle as a benevolent grandfather— He loves his children and his grandchildren in the faith, and he's been a patriarch, loving and leading the church through perilous times, and as he nears the end of his life, he wants to make sure that they have received the true gift of surpassing greatness. And because Peter is an experienced pastor, he knows that there are wicked people, even within the very church that he's writing to, who would steal away that gift with the promise of something greater. And so in the passage last week, our Peter showed us how the apostle, that could get confusing, but was again reminding of and entrusting the gospel to the church. He was writing a last will and testament and he was saying, this is the most precious gift that I have to give you, Jesus Christ. In him, you become a partaker of the divine nature. In him, you bear the fruit of the spirit, which makes you strong and healthy. You, you grow throughout the Christian life, in the knowledge of him, and especially through his word, you receive all that is needed for life and godliness. And like a wise and loving grandfather, Peter called the church to hold fast to the gospel. He considered it his duty to always remind them of this truth, even though they already knew it and were established in it. He still reminded them again and again of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 15, he made this interesting statement. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Or we could almost reword that, I'm going to haunt you from the grave. Except this isn't a haunting. It's a loving, faithful reminder to cling to and to grow in the knowledge of Christ. That's the true gift of surpassing greatness. And Peter wants to keep it central in the life of the church even after he's gone. Well, in today's passage, we're going to see how Peter made preparations for the truth of the gospel to echo in the hearts and minds of God's people until the end of time, because he did. Peter played his part in ensuring that the great gift of the gospel would ring out until Jesus returned. And here's what he's calling us to today. Trust the witnesses so you live increasingly for Christ's return. Trust the witnesses. So, you live more and more for Christ's return. One of the bedrock principles of biblical justice is the requirement for two or more witnesses to establish the validity of a statement. You don't punish someone for an offense without biblical corroboration. That, that's the negative side, punishing the wrongdoer. But there's also a positive side. When two or more reliable, credible witnesses provide evidence in whatever form, we can and should have competence in their testimony. And the more and the better those witnesses are, the greater our competence should be. So today we're going to see the testimony, the witnesses, that Peter has left for us to establish us in the truth of the gospel under three points. And the first is the testimony of truth, not myth. So let's read Second Peter 1 verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. In order to understand this letter and, and this passage, we need to know a bit about the problems that Peter was addressing. In the church, there had arisen men who were teaching false doctrines. We're going to see that especially in chapter 2. And, and there were two primary lies that these influential men were teaching. The first was to deny that Jesus would return. If you look at chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, he talks about scoffers who were saying, hey, where's the promise of his coming? We keep hearing, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. He's not here. Where is he? And since Jesus wasn't going to return, then then there was nothing to look forward to. There was no hope for something greater in the future. And perhaps most importantly, if Jesus doesn't return, there's no final judgment to fear. If Jesus doesn't return, you don't need to worry about facing him. And that led to the second lie. They were antinomians. They denied the role of the law and obedience in the Christian life. And, and, And we saw Peter addressing that last week. So these teachers championed a a false vision of freedom, teaching that at least some forms of sexual immorality were okay, and and we'll see that in chapter 2. It talks about them living according to sensuality, that they're blasphemers and adulterers, that they're they're caught in in their corruption, they're enslaved to their corruption. So Peter's writing this letter to deal with false teachers who denied Jesus' return and called people to a sensual lifestyle in the name of freedom. Now, doesn't that seem like a timely message? As our world embraces increasingly bizarre and ultimately destructive forms of sexual immorality, living as though there's no God and there's no judgment, which is not all that surprising from the world. But what's tragic is that at least some prominent voices in the church urge us to make accommodations to these agendas so that we can retain that most precious of commodities, relevance. But that kind of relevant church is just a church with stage four cancer waiting to die. Those are the problems that Peter's confronting in this letter. And last week he urged the church to make every effort in faith to grow in Christian virtue and holiness. We pursue growth because it confirms that we belong to the eternal kingdom of God. And that's where Peter said, I'm going to make every effort to keep reminding you of this until I'm dead, and then even after I'm gone. Which brings us to this verse. This passage begins with a four, so it flows out of what came before. And where Peter's looking to stir up the church to remember Jesus. Why? Why should we recall these things? Because they're the truth. They're the most precious truth at that Verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. This is a pointer to what the false teachers were saying. They were accusing the apostles of making up stories about Jesus and his return. That's the meaning of myths, stories that are not grounded in reality. They're not connected to the way things are. They're fairy tales. These false teachers were saying, Jesus isn't actually going to return. That's a myth. It's meant to scare you into towing the line, into behaving a certain way. It's a power play, right? Meant to make you pliable. Don't believe it. We have true freedom. So put away the myth of final judgment and you can live however you want now. Isn't that freedom? That's the appeal of their message. And Peter goes right at it. He says, these aren't stories born out of our fertile imaginations. When we talked about Jesus coming in power, we were telling you about what we actually saw. We were there, we are eyewitnesses, and what we saw with our eyes was his very majesty. Christianity is real and it's powerful because it's true. Jesus really existed. He really accomplished all that's recorded for us in Scripture and more, John tells us, right? Even the whole world couldn't contain the books that would need to be written to record what Jesus did. And one of the many ways that older saints serve the church is by testifying and reminding us of what they've experienced. They they put us in touch with the past. Their lives bear witness to the faithfulness of God through the years. Like a beloved grandfather, Peter is entrusting to the generations after him the truth of what he saw and what he experienced. But he's not just a grandfather with great stories. He's an apostle. He's one of 12 specially chosen witnesses, and he's a leader among the apostles. He suffered persecution and attack for the sake of Christ. Church history tells us that he was martyred. Crucified almost certainly under Nero for the sake of his faithful witness to his Lord. So Peter gives no quarter to the lie that he and the other apostles had made up a mythical Christianity. The return of Jesus is no fairy tale. It's an historical certainty with a fixed date set by God in eternity past in the most wise counsel of his own holy will. Set by God, and and it will occur when at the time of his choosing, he sends his son into the world, returning as the conquering king, surrounded by the hosts of heaven, all dressed in white, coming to bring final judgment, to bring history to its appointed end. And if you want to remind yourself of that, go to Revelation 19 this afternoon, and beginning in verse 11, read about Jesus' return. So the very first thing Peter wants us to understand is that Jesus' return is the truth. It's not a myth. It's the truth. It is settled. It is fixed. And it is going to happen. So trust the witnesses so you live increasingly for Christ's return. And that brings us to our second point, the testimony of those who were there. So let's read verses 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased," we ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. One of the realities of modern life that I, I never expected to see in my lifetime was a society-wide preoccupation with pronouns. Who knew that the lowly pronoun, one of the most humble parts of human language, would take on the significance that it has today? Just This past week I was speaking with a pastor who teaches in public school, and one of his students has identified as transgender and wants to go by the pronouns they, them. And so after the student shares something in class, this teacher is supposed to say, as they just said, referring not to a group, but to an individual. It's one of the ways that the sexual revolution is sowing is confusion into our society's already tenuous grasp on reality. Well, Christians know that pronouns matter. And it's very important that we use the pronouns that correspond with the truth and with reality as it truly is. An awful lot of meaning can be packed into a pronoun. And that's demonstrated in this passage. At the end of last week's passage, the apostle used the first person singular pronouns, I and my, some half dozen times. If you look at beginning of verse 12, therefore, I intend to always remind you, I think it right as long as I am in this body, since I know that the putting off of my body, right, I will make every effort. In this passage, Peter makes a strategic change in the use of pronouns. He doesn't do first person singular, he does first person plural. We, we did not follow. We have made known to you. We were eyewitnesses. We ourselves heard. And we were with him on the holy mountain. Pronouns matter. Peter has shifted from sharing his personal burden, I, to being part of a chorus of witnesses. We Not to be too simplistic, but we means I plus others, right? So the pronoun we requires multiple witnesses. Peter's not saying, here's my story, here's what I think. He's saying, I am but one representative of a group of multiple persons who together testify to the same reality. We've met and we've exceeded the threshold for biblical justice, for biblical credibility. And then he goes on to offer three different kinds of testimony, and the first actually comes at the end of verse 16. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So the first level of testimony is the eyewitness. If you were Peter and you wanted to testify to the church about the truth of who Jesus is and that he's going to return, what would you testify to? Interestingly enough, Peter goes to a story that's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. You'll remember this story. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he took them up to a mountain. And Matthew 17 is one of the accounts, and it tells us, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. So when Peter wants to testify to the true identity of Jesus that affirms his divine authority, he tells him about the time he went up on the mountain and saw Jesus in all of his true glory. That's what he means when he writes, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter was there. He saw Jesus' face shining like the sun. He saw his clothes brilliant white, beyond imagination, and he saw Moses and Elijah talking with him. Right? You remember this story? Peter's like, "Hey, hey, this is great. Let's build some tents. We can hang out." Right? He's clearly flustered. He doesn't know what to do. But there's one particular aspect of the story that Peter emphasizes here in this letter, in verse 17, and this is the second kind of testimony that Peter recalls for us. It's the testimony. Of the Father. As Jesus stood on that mountain, unveiled in glory, the Father, whom Peter here refers to as the majestic glory, gave his own testimony to Jesus' true identity, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This simple phrase alludes to two key Old Testament passages uh, that we'll put up on a slide here that identify Jesus as the Messiah King. And as the suffering servant. It's uh, Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. And so the Father's alluding to these passages with specific words, speaking them over the Son, testifying that He was no ordinary man. Jesus was the Messiah, He's the chosen Savior, and the Father's voice is testifying to that truth. So the Father also testifies to the true identity of Jesus. He is the son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the beloved one. He's the Savior. And of course, that testimony on the mountain was very similar to the testimony that the father pronounced over Jesus at his baptism. So from first to last, Jesus was the beloved son of the father, accomplishing the will of the Trinity. And that brings us to the third kind of testimony in this passage. Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. So not only were Peter, James, and John eyewitnesses to Jesus' true identity, they were also earwitnesses. They heard the heavenly voice. So Peter's grounding our confidence in the gospel in a multitude of witnesses who together all testify to the true identity of who Jesus was and is and to the historical reality of his work on behalf of his people. Peter is stirring up our faith by reminding us of the truth witnessed by those who were actually there. They were actually there. This is not a cleverly devised myth. It's a straightforward account of those who were on the scene. And these are reliable witnesses. There is no more reliable witness than God himself. Peter's reminding us of these truths because they're designed to encourage our faith. They're meant to orient us to reality. They're meant to assure us that Jesus will return. When Peter stood on that mountain, he saw Jesus for who he truly was. He heard who Jesus truly was. Peter tells us that Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father. The Father himself was testifying to Jesus' divinity, and here Peter records that testimony for the church for all time. Right, says, like, I'm gonna make every effort to remind you so that even after I die, you can recall these things. That's this. Here we are 2,000 years later recalling these things on the other side of the world because Peter was faithful to witness. We need to understand something here. At the end of last week's passage in verse 12, Peter wrote, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So you see what he's saying? He's acknowledging everything I'm telling you, you already know it. Not only do you already know it, you're already established in it. And you know what I'm going to do about it? I'm going to tell you it again. I'm going to keep coming back to it. I'm going to, not only am I going to keep coming back to it, after I'm dead, I'm going to keep coming back to it. He's committed. So we have to recognize that Christian maturity may not be what we think it is. We tend to have a certain view of progress that it's only onward and upward oriented. Things are supposed to just keep getting better and better. You work hard and apply yourself and everything improves in life. Your finances improve and your relationships improve and your skill base and your experience and things just keep getting better and and you take the achievements that you have and you put them in your back pocket and you move on. Well, I don't know if you ever watched Sesame Street when you were a kid, but they always had this thing, one of these things is not like the others. Right? So if you take all these areas of life that we're supposed to be progressing in and alongside them you put the gospel, it's the gospel that's unlike the others. Because among other things, the gospel says to us, there is absolutely nothing that you can do to make progress before God. There's nothing you can do. There's no contribution you can make. There's no skill you can gain. There's no effort you can expend that will make progress for you before God. Instead, the gospel says, the only way to be in God's favor is to be found in Christ. It's to trust him. It's to receive as a gift the good standing before the Father that he gives to those who trust him. Good standing before God comes ever and always, without exception, as a gift. That's true at the very first moment you believe. And it's no less true when you take your final breath here On this earth, from first to last, the gospel is a gift of grace. So remember what Peter wrote at the very beginning of this letter to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, your faith equal with Peter's, how? By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So the gospel is not a program for progress. If you think you can take a little Weight Watchers and a little Gospel and a little Dave Ramsey and a little what and we're just going to make some progress in life, you blaspheme. The Gospel is not a program for progress. It's a gift to be received and reveled in forever. That's incredibly attractive. But if we're not careful, it can actually become repulsive over time. It attracts us because on some level we all recognize that we are desperate for grace and forgiveness. When Paul writes in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we know that's true. We know we're guilty. We have all done things of which we're deeply ashamed. We we feel it in our bones. And so when we hear that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again so that we can be fully pardoned and set free from the enslaving power of sin, such news comes as sweet relief. We're drawn to the greatness of his mercy. But once the reality of the grace of God has begun to settle in and it becomes familiar to us, we can ironically and tragically begin to take it for granted. It happens slowly, almost imperceptibly, as we begin to append an, of course, to the front of every gospel statement we know. Of course, God loves me. Of course, God forgives me. Of course, God will be patient with me. We, we begin to take the gospel for granted, which means we begin to get annoyed when people talk about sin and grace. We begin to equate grace with an absence of all this sin talk. We think grace just means to overlook something rather than recognize that true grace is the most costly thing that there is. Because true grace looks sin fully in the face. It fully accounts for sin. It it fully uh, uh, accomplishes justice. It looks at sin in the face and it applies the atonement to it. So you see, when Peter said he was going to always remind the church of these truths, he was making something clear. There's nothing beyond this. There's no progress greater than the gospel. Nothing greater, nothing deeper, nothing more glorious, nothing more satisfying. We do not progress beyond the gospel. The only true progress is in the gospel. So, so we need to ask ourselves, am I increasing in my appreciation for the grace of God in my life? Or am I increasingly taking it for granted? Is it boring me? Am I unaffected by the reality of grace? True Christian maturity is found in one and only one place, the gospel. It's found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's found as we face our sins and we take them to the Savior and we experience again and again the wonder of His forgiveness and mercy and patience and love. Whenever we find ourselves growing familiar and bored with the gospel, we need to recognize that it is we who are weak and immature. Christian maturity, it's not wallowing in our sins and it's not blowing past them as though they're no big deal. Christian maturity is found in the gospel which names and condemns our sins and then holds out to us the wonder of the Savior, Christ crucified and risen for us. So we need to make every effort, as Peter says, to always remind one another of these truths and to live continually in light of them. That's why Peter is providing for us these testimonies, these witnesses to reality today. So trust the witnesses, and you will live increasingly for Christ's return. It brings us to the third and final point, the testimony of those who waited with hope. So let's read verses 19 to 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter now closes his argument by adding a fourth layer of witness. The prophetic testimony of scripture. He writes, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. In other words, we have the promises of the Old Testament. The the testimonies of those who waited with hope more fully confirmed. Those prophecies were witnesses. They were testimonies. They were pointers to the coming Savior. And the transfiguration of Jesus, among other things, confirms these prophecies. It demonstrates that what they promised is true. And it sheds light on the truth. So what are we to do with that? Right? How are these things supposed to affect us? Well, Peter says you would do well to pay attention. To pay attention. And then he uses an oft-occurring illustration for God's Word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So the testimony of God's Word is light. Light that cuts through the darkness. Light that dispels the darkness. It's, It's light that provides wisdom in the midst of folly and immaturity. It's light that's pure in the midst of evil and perversion. So, Pay attention, Peter says. Pay attention to the word of God. Treasure it. Study it. Mine its riches. And then he tells us how long we'll need to pay attention. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So the dawning day is the end of the world. It's the day of judgment. The the Old Testament especially, but also the New Testament, speak repeatedly of that day. The great day when God will bring all deeds to light and he'll settle all accounts before his holy throne. And until that day dawns, we do well to pay attention to God's word. For Christians, that day is not just a day of judgment. It's the day when faith becomes sight. It's the day when we go from the church militant to the church triumphant. As the, the morning star rises in our hearts Jesus is the morning star, and his rising in our hearts is the effect of the day dawning for his people. It's the good news, the the very best of news that we long for and that we look forward to. So Christian maturity includes an ever-increasing hope in Jesus' return because we know that the world is full of evil and trouble and that our hearts are frail and fickle and that only the return of the Savior can finally and fully set all things right. As Kelly writes, the morning star rising in our hearts is a a depiction. It's a picture of the way in which at his coming, Christ will dissipate the doubt and uncertainty by which unbelievers' hearts are meanwhile beclouded and will fill them with a marvelous illumination. Jesus' return will cut through the darkness and he will welcome us forever into his marvelous light. Peter then wraps up this section by teaching us something about these prophecies that have been confirmed, about the nature of all of Scripture. It's not ultimately dependent on man, but on God. He writes, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. You can hear him again saying, look, these are not cleverly devised myths. They're not the, the product of human religious genius. The source is divine. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So he, he's clearly speaking of Scripture because there's all kinds of prophets and prophecies that are false and foolish, right? So there's, there's an implied modifier here. The no prophecy means no genuine prophecy, no biblical prophecy, no Scripture. He's saying the source of prophecy, true prophecy, is not ultimately human but divine. And I use that phrase, ultimate source, for a reason. About a century ago, the Lion of Princeton, B.B. Warfield, used the term concursus to describe the relationship between the divine and the human authorship of Scripture. So we don't believe in dictation. We don't think God took Moses' aside and said, write this down, in the beginning, in the beginning. I created, God created, right? It's not how it went. God didn't dictate to Moses. And he didn't sit back and say, hey, write whatever you want, and then, okay, now it's inspired, right? Concursus is getting at the reality of what does it mean for humans to write and for God to inspire, right? So men wrote the Word of God. They used their own vocabulary, their own experiences, their own syntax, their own sense of how to convey things. They're they're real human agents acting as such. And the primary author of Scripture is God. Superintending the whole process, right? As Peter says here, carrying the human author along by his spirit, inspiring its content, ensuring its inerrancy. So the divine authority of Scripture does not eliminate human authorship and human agency, it establishes it. God used men to record his word, carrying them along by his spirit. And it is that sufficient Clear, authoritative, necessary word that you hold in your hands. This word from men carried along by God, given to the church for all time until the morning star rises in your hearts. It's this word that gives us the knowledge of Christ. That we need to grow as God's people. It's this word that records the various witnesses to the reality of who Jesus is and to the reality of his return. I ask Doug to come up. And so we come to the end. Peter has again reminded us of the gospel and of the good news of Jesus, and he's, he's successfully accomplished what he made every effort to do to remind us. Of Jesus. And so I want to close with a very simple visual depiction of, a, of what I think Peter's logic is here. So, first, Jesus came in power and glory. Second, the apostles were there, they, they witnessed it. Third, the apostles took that and they taught it and they applied it to the Christian life. And then finally, those who receive that teaching have hope. What is that hope? Well, here's where the logic comes full circle because all true Christian hope is found in the power and glory of Jesus. Jesus Christ is hope. He lived and he died and he rose again and he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father and he lives to intercede for his people. And one day he will return and all will be made right. The morning star will rise in our hearts. So trust the witnesses, and you will live increasingly for Christ's return. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.